morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter, right before 1 John. 2 Peter, and to the first chapter. You know, uh, when we watched that video a little bit ago of the Seinkoffs, we got to see uh, a portion of the FBC counseling ministry. Um, FBC counseling ministry attempts through one-on-one interactions, through some small group interactions, through classes. Uh, We attempt to minister to people where their lives really are to find hope in Christ the way he really is. And whether people struggle with depression or struggle with coming out of a uh, compulsive problem with lust or a problem with anxiety or marital conflict or unforgiveness or anger, whatever it is that people struggle with, which are common to all of us, even people in Christ, uh, what we find, all of the maybe 40 people who work together to do that with a little over 100 people a year, um, what we find is that there are, that even though the people that we work with largely are believers, that they face so many of these kinds of things that uh, although we want to help them, we want to point them to what it is that the Lord has because they're just like we are, they're saints who suffer and who sin. So we can, we who are part of the counseling ministry can identify with that. But, but one of the things that I have to say as I prayed after Mark asked me if I would uh, share at the end of July, I prayed for a few weeks about, Lord, what would you have me share? You know, you come in one time, what, what's on your heart, Lord, that maybe I could share with, with the body? And what came to my mind was a small passage at the beginning of First Peter and specifically a theme that you're going to see in that passage, the theme of knowing God, the theme of knowing God. And whether you're watching online or here in person or if you're in F3, wherever you happen to be in the midst of this worship moment, uh, the realization is that the phrase knowing God sounds a little bit If I were to hear it in a sermon and I had not been thinking about it myself, I think it would sound a little insipid, a little weak, Uh, meaning, well, I'm a Christian, so I know God, right? You you can't know God unless you come to know him by faith, unless you're born again. You can't come to know God, but it would seem to me that if I was a person who trusted Christ 46 years ago, I understood the gospel and I believed it, Uh, that therefore I know God. But I think what we'll see today is it's not quite that way. It's true that we meet God when we meet him by faith. But meeting him, that is beginning the process of knowing him, and knowing him are two different things. Uh, There's a, a passage in John 17 where Jesus in his high priestly prayer to the Father says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Isn't that interesting? If I had asked you before I put that verse up and I asked you what is eternal life, I'd like you to think through what your answer would have been. 
Because for the first 20 years of my Christian life, my answer, if somebody had said, is what eternal life? I would say, well, that's what happens to Christians after they die. They get to go to heaven. And that would have been my definition. And that's true. People who have trusted in Christ do get to go to heaven after they die. And it's true that that's part of eternal life. But in Jesus' own words, that is not eternal life. Eternal life is knowing him. One of the greatest Christian classics of all time, written almost 50 years ago by J.I. Packer, is entitled Knowing God. That whole nearly 400-page book is about what does it mean to know God? Our mission ministry, one of the most popular books they use, they've got, I don't know how many books altogether, maybe 40 books that they use around the world and in this church for discipleship. One of the number one books they use around the world in, in scores and scores, actually hundreds of churches, is the book Knowing God, not the one by J.I. Packer, but a Bible study that's been developed here within the church. This idea of knowing God is a familiar concept in terms of biblical thought and in terms of history within the church, but it's not necessarily something that all of us think about all that much. Knowing God is actually so interesting in that not only does Jesus refer to it as this is eternal life. But the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us that not only, does, not only does Jesus refer to knowing God as eternal life, but Satan in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that the weapons of our warfare, it's talking about spiritual warfare for Christians, are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, fortresses that have been raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, why would it say that? Well, what it's saying is that if you don't know Christ, if you're a person who hasn't quite understood the gospel and you haven't taken in that gift of life that Christ offers you, the Bible teaches that Satan's number one job with you is to get you to, to, to block you from hearing the gospel, block you from understanding the gospel, and block you from believing the gospel. But if you've already come to faith, that's not his goal. You've already believed the gospel. His goal, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, is just to keep you from knowing him. What we're going to look at today is why. Why would Jesus refer to knowing him as eternal life? Why would Satan have as his main goal to keep you a Christian and me a Christian from knowing him? Why would that be? Let's look at Second Peter, and I want us to read together the first four verses. You can follow along either in your Bible or on the screen. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Just look at the first three verses right now. In this passage, we're going to see four great promises. Four great promises which, as I lay hold of them, have the power to resolve pretty much every counseling issue I've ever faced. 
I want us to see how Peter gets to these promises. He starts off, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He, Peter starts out with a humble recognition of the fact that he's just a servant. Uh, he identifies himself that way. I, I, that, as I get older, more, makes more and more sense. As a young man, I would, I would say, yeah, yeah, right, I'm a servant. I need to do things God wants me to do. But the older I get, the more I realize that that really is all we are if we know Christ, if we rightly see our identity. But he goes on one step further beyond saying he's a bondservant, and he says, not only am I a bondservant because of how great God is, but on the heels of that, he says he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus. Um, sort of, if you could put it this way, avoiding false humility. He acknowledges when he uses that term apostle, he's speaking about a term of, of authority, but you could call it loaned authority. Apostleship means you've been sent. Someone else sent you, it wasn't your idea. That's the idea. So when, when the apostle Peter says, I'm a servant of the Lord, and oh, by the way, I was sent by him in a very specific way. That's why he has that title. He's not claiming anything for himself, but he is claiming Jesus decided to send me. And so whatever authority I have as I get ready to speak is his authority. And then he says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Um, King James says, like precious faith. Great phrase. Uh, like precious faith to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. But what kind of faith is that? What, what is the faith he specifies? What I think is interesting is that Peter is saying that the faith that his readers have, and you and I have today, 2,000 years later, is the same kind of faith he had, even though he was an eyewitness, even though he ate with Jesus even though he slept on the ground next to Jesus, even though he was an intimate friend of Jesus, he would say the faith you have, if you're in Christ today, that you have the exact same kind of faith he did, which means whatever that faith was capable of accomplishing in him, it's capable of accomplishing in you and me. See, my tendency, I don't know about yours, my tendency is to think that there are some people who just have it. And, and for the first 25 years or so of my Christian life, I was thinking, yeah, I wish I could be like that, but I'm sure I can never be like that because I have all these roadblocks in my life. There are things about me that could never allow me to be that kind of godly man or like that godly woman, those kind of characteristics. But what he's saying is, you and I, if we're in Christ, we have a faith of the exact same kind. And I'd like us to find out what that kind of faith is two ways. One is by a the next phrase in the book, it says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the faith. The faith Peter had was by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the faith that you have if you're in Christ and that I have. Let's listen to or watch a video where somebody tries to explain that faith, if you will. This is uh, Alistair Begg. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves, all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? 
If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, did you, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I've never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come." Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. That's what it means when Peter says, a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's because the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's a faith that begins with him. Yes, we respond in faith, but the reason that we're able to have life after this is, is because of the promise that he made. It's, be, it's because of him. But notice that the person who says this, who says he has a faith and you and I have a faith that is the same, notice these things about him. He was the apostle who told the Lord that his father's plan was no good. He was the apostle who fell asleep when the Lord needed him. He was the apostle who seized control of the transfiguration and in the garden and often put his foot in his mouth. He was the one who ran from Jesus in the garden. He was the disciple who knew, denied that he even knew him three times and even emphasized it with an oath. He was the disciple who said he would never fall away even if others did. He's the same apostle who, when he realized it was the risen Lord on the shore, jumped out of his fishing boat. He's the same apostle who, when he was one of the top church leaders years later, and Jewish Christians pressured believers to stay away from Gentiles, gave in to their pressure. This was a man marked by fear. This was a man marked by doubt. This was a man marked by a desire to control. This was a man marked by disloyalty. This was a man marked by profanity. This was mar a man marked by judgment of others. As a Christian. And yet that same apostle, that same apostle, 
after 30 years of walking with the Lord, is able under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, I want to tell those of you who have a faith of the same kind as ours, that which is based on the righteousness of Christ, I want to let you know four promises. The first promise is found in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. This, this is a remarkable promise. Uh, when you trusted in Christ, when you believed the gospel, whether it was today, just now, in the last 15 minutes, or, or whether it happened to you 40 years ago, whenever you believed the gospel, the Bible says that that happened by grace. But what Peter is saying is that grace is actually available in, in multiplied grace, meaning more grace than you've ever had before. Now, I don't know what it was like for you when you believed the gospel. I know that the night I heard the gospel, it was about 2.30 in the morning, and I went back to bed, and I remember lying down and thinking for the first time in 19 years, I'm going to heaven. No matter what else happens, I'm going to heaven, and I fell asleep. When I woke up the next morning, my first conscious thought was, I'm going to heaven. And I remember that creating a framework for the whole rest of my life, that the biggest question was answered. Now, as far as I knew, that was all there was of grace. But what little did I know that Peter writes by the end of the book, grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because... The grace I had received at that point was enough grace for me to believe the gospel. It was enough to have my sins forgiven, but it was not enough grace for me to handle times of fear. It was not enough grace for me to handle times of doubt. It was not enough time for me to handle failure because I needed new grace for that. It's the same grace in a manner of speaking, but it's multiplied the more I walk with him. This passage is going to even tell us a little more about what that means, but the point is Peter is saying as a man who learned it himself by experience, we all need the additional grace that is available in Christ, multiplied grace. The other thing he says is multiplied is peace. You see it there in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, peace, that we've all heard that... Uh, Middle Eastern term, a word that in Hebrew is translated peace, the, the word shalom. Linguists say that the word shalom, the word peace that you see in the Old Testament is best, best interpreted as the word wholeness. Wholeness, like W-H-O-L-E, wholeness. In other words, we think of peace as just quiet, and, and that's an okay, that's a, an element of peace but wholeness meaning the way things are meant to be. I think about shalom or, or peace, I think about it like uh, kids playing contentedly by themselves on the living room floor. You're doing something else, you're in the kitchen or you're going out in the backyard and you're doing something and you come in and the kids are content and they're playing and you just go, could this just freeze for a little while? There's, there's no argument, they're content, they're enjoying themselves and I'm able to do something else. I mean, this is the best of all worlds. Um, or I think about long trips. Um, I can think of as a kid myself and then as a parent. I can think of long trips where you're driving at night and the kids are asleep in the back of the car and all there is is the sound of tires rolling over asphalt 
and the hum of the air conditioner. There's just a quiet. Um, unless, of course, like somebody I just looked at and know very well, they had a child who every time he got in the car, he threw up. So it wasn't really so much shalom for them. But um, shalom is that sense of wholeness like... Uh, my wife, Diane, loves to garden. She loves, she says, I love getting my hands dirty. I like mulch. I like seeing tomatoes grow because they're going to be so much better than anything you get in a store. There's fullness in that. I think of it as the way I grew up. I think of uh, walking near the ocean or near a, a, a boat basin and hearing the sound of a breeze blowing the halyards against the mast of sailboats. Just the quiet sound of water lapping against a shore. I don't know what peace is for you, but I know that there is a sense of wholeness that according to the Bible, it says peace is multiplied to you. I want that. I bet you do too. And if we went on a little further, we would see in verse 3 two other things that the Apostle Peter offers. Grace and peace are multiplied to you. Look at verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I still remember the first time I really saw that. I did an exegetical study of this back in college, a, a study in Greek of the whole thing, and I, I wrote a 105-page commentary on 2 Peter, only three chapters. That shows how much time you can waste, you know, adding your wisdom to what God managed to do in just a few words. But I never noticed this then. As thoroughly as I studied, I didn't notice it for another 25 years. But notice that he, he, he says this in the past tense. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That means that if you're a Christian today, you already received everything that would ever be necessary for you to experience what he calls life and godliness. Now, it's important for us to know what he means by those terms. Uh, life is not biological life. He's not saying you received everything when you believed on Christ necessary to live biologically because you were already alive biologically. And he's not even talking about being born again. He's not saying you received everything necessary to be born again because according to verse 1, they're already born again. He is talking about something here in verse 3. His power has granted to you in Christ, me in Christ, everything you could ever need, everything I could ever need for me to experience abundant life. That's what he's referring to. He's talking about rich life. He's talking about fullness. I don't know how much you've tasted of that. Uh, Diane and I had a friend in Houston, Sue Ellen Smith. Sue Ellen was, humanly speaking, the, I mean, the Lord did it, but she was the one God used to pray our first son through his delivery when he was born not breathing and blue and umbilical cord tied in a knot and, and uh, wrapped around his neck and uh, looking like death when he came out. Um, we found out later that at the exact moment he was being born, she was vacuuming, and she said, I felt as though God just slapped me and said, turn off your vacuum cleaner and get on your knees. She said, I got on my knees to pray for Diane and the baby. She knew we had gone into delivery. We called her that morning at 6 o'clock and asked her to pray. This is five hours later, and God is moving her to pray at the exact moment that he is being born. Sue Ellen was just a rich, a lady of remarkable joy. Uh, I've mentioned before Diane's grandfather. 
uh, a guy who was just so full of joy. He was fun enough that when you asked for butter at Thanksgiving, he would, as you reached for it and he handed it to you, he would lift it and jam it into your thumb. But on the other hand, at age 97, as he's going into surgery, his last words before he went under anesthesia were to the nurse who was standing by him as he wheeled into the OR. And his daughter heard him say, as he reached up to her arm and said, tell me about you and Jesus. And then he went into the OR and he never recovered. That man was so full of life. I've mentioned before the professor, Charles Smith, whom I knew at Grace Seminary, who, uh, when I saw him a year before his death, was like a different man than he had been five years before. And I asked him, what got into you? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I don't know exactly how to say this, but you weren't a very nice person five years ago. And five years later, there is something so full in you that I, I just, I don't want to leave. After three hours, I just want to visit with you. And he laughed and he said, well, when we moved out to California, the house just happened to have a hot tub. And so for three years, I've been hot tubbing with Jesus. And I asked him what that meant. And he said, well, I decided to go out there one day and the verse popped in my mind, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man wills and opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him. So I said, Lord, I'm here to sup. And for the last three years, I've been supping. And as much as I love theology and as much as I love books, as much as I love writing and teaching, those have not taught me in 35 years as much about knowing God as that hot tub has taught me in the last three years. That's what I mean by life. Somebody who, when you're with them, you just want to be with them more and you want what they have. And Peter is saying that has already been deposited in you if you're a Christian. Everything necessary for that to be there. And what's the other one? Godliness. Godliness means like God. Meaning in the way that I treat other people, I can actually be like God instead of being the ways I've been so much of my life. Meaning in sexuality, I can be like God. I don't mean like God as in somebody who, is, who doesn't have a relationship with a spouse. I don't mean that, but I mean holy. In, in the way I handle money, I can be like God. That video that we saw that advertised that would reminded us of the class we have coming up in September, Financial Peace University, and all the other things we try to do in the counseling department. All of these are ultimately an effort on our part and as a department to try to help people know God in a real and practical way in their lives. What this passage says is everything necessary has already been given to anybody who's in Christ to have greater grace, multiplied grace, greater peace, multiplied peace, real life, abundant life, and godliness. But have you noticed that I've left something out? Have you noticed a, a phrase I left out in verse 2 and verse 3? If you're reading along, uh, if you see it with me, it says this in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 3. Seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Well, what's the point with those two clauses? What's, what's the point of those? It, he's not just saying every Christian gets multiplied grace. He's not saying that. And he's not saying every Christian gets multiplied peace. In fact, 
if every Christian did get multiplied grace and multiplied peace and what he's referring to as abundant life and godliness, he wouldn't be writing this. He's writing it precisely because we don't naturally get that on our own. We only get it as we grow to know him. Now, I, I think it's helpful to see, I think it's helpful for us to see what we mean by know, because uh, I think that can help us a little bit. There, in a moment, will be on the screen just three different words in the New Testament that are used for, for know. Um, one of them is oida, which means to perceive or to know a thing as by seeing. Um, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I know what it looks like. I've seen pictures of it, you know. A lot of you have been there. Um, I, have, I don't have a more relevant experience than that, but I, I'm certainly aware of this thing. I have a familiarity with it. Gnosis is another word that's used, meaning to learn or to observe or to discern, uh, to be able to form a judgment on. It's, um, gnosis is more of a... Um, it's more like a, an area of subject expertise. You have a, you have an, ex, you have a, a uh, um, it's not just a familiarity, but it's something that you, that you have, um, you're able to, you're able to make judgments about meaning. You, you have enough background of knowledge that it's not just familiarity. It's more something that, that you can, um, that you could comment on or that you can add to. But the third one, which happens to be the word that's used in verse 2 and the word that's used in verse 3, epinosis, is specifically to refer to a full knowledge. The emphasis is on experience. It's a person actually experiencing this thing. It's, it's, it's kind of like uh, Diane and I next month will celebrate 40 years of marriage. Now, I can remember, I recently have seen some pictures of when we were dating and then some pictures of when we were engaged. And I knew Diane then, but I really know her now. I had a certain amount of recognition of her back then, but there's been something more. You, you might see somebody you see in church and you greet them by name and you know them, you've, you've been around them. But if you've spent the last nine years going to the beach with their family and you know their kids and you know the jokes that they tell, and you know they cheat at which games they cheat. There's a level of knowledge there that's much more experiential. And that's the same way here. He's talking about the more you grow to really know me, that is when your grace will grow. That is when your peace will multiply. That is when you'll experience this thing called abundant life. Each time I find myself withdrawn or angry, or discouraged, or embittered, or any of the kinds of things that often contaminate our relationships. It's possible that I may be under attack from the enemy. I know a time a few months ago where it was very clear that I was really struggling deeply and had been praying about it for a couple of months, and I finally went to four or five friends, and I said, please pray for me on this. I just feel like I'm kind of weighed down in a way that I can't think clearly, and they spent they spent about six hours with me as well as praying for me for a while and God just lifted this thing and I do think there was a real spiritual oppression. That sometimes is what's going on for us. Um, 
Or at times when I'm feeling those things or you're feeling those things, it may be that you've allowed yourself to go under too much stress or to have too little sleep or too little exercise or something. I don't doubt that. But I do think it's fair to say on the basis of this passage that whenever, whenever I find myself distant from other people, untrusting, fearful, holding on to my life, whenever I find myself resentful, angry, or any of the other things that we talked about, I think it's fair to say that at that moment, I am not walking in what he refers to as the knowledge of him. It doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. It doesn't mean I don't have his Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean I've lost my salvation. It means I've lost that multiplied grace and multiplied peace, and I'm not experiencing life, and I'm not experiencing godliness. Because in some way, I'm not walking in the knowledge of him. And I just want to say two things about that. Maybe three. One, I want to know him more. I want to be more like Diane's pawpaw. I want to be more like Sue Ellen. Uh, I'm 65 now, and I just find that he is available to be known. And knowing him like that, there's, it's better than everything. Kind of... I think I told the story in here one time when I wrecked my motorcycle out here uh, 25 years ago. And as I was going down on the pavement and as my helmet hit the ground and I heard it spin five times before I passed out, I remember in my spirit, not hearing audibly, but hearing in my heart, it's okay, I'll be with you in this. And my last thought before I fell asleep was, a lot of good that does me. And over the next few weeks and months and even years, God taught me that it was exactly right. You're better to wreck a motorcycle and know him than to not wreck a motorcycle and not get to know him. By the way, I'm not advertising or recommending wrecking motorcycles. The point is knowing him is better than how bad it is to wreck a motorcycle. That's the point. So the first thing is I want to know him more. The second thing is I think there's a lot involved in it. I think we could oversimplify it by saying here are the three steps to knowing him more. So I just want to encourage you to do all the things you know that help you know him. You know, be in Christian community. I've never found a person who was able, being totally isolated, to be able to grow in the knowledge of God because the knowledge of God has something to do with rubbing shoulders with others. It clearly can't happen apart from an interaction, a personal interaction with the Word of God. Meaning if I'm not spending some time just drinking in what he has to say and just talking with him, I don't think I can grow in the knowledge of him. So I don't know all the things that are involved. Uh, read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Read, uh, do the Bible study that we have here at the church in the mission department called Knowing God. Do, there are ways to get to grow in the knowledge of him and it's worth it. But the third and final thing I want to say is this. Peter tells us a few things which if we'll do will actually help us grow to know him. And they're in this immediate passage and I'd like to close with that. 
and I'm just going to read it very briefly, very simply. He tells us in verse 4, and then I'll go on to verse 5. I'll read verses uh, 5 through 8, but verse 4 says, By these, by his glory and excellence, he has granted to us precious, magnificent promises so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. By the way, what a great phrase, partakers of the divine nature. What he's saying is people who walk in the knowledge of him and who have multiplied grace, multiplied peace, multiplied life, and multiplied godliness, they're actually partaking of his nature, meaning they're like God. That's what it means. That's why these things are really cool is because you were built for it and I was built for it, and yet we're often not there. But let's look at, at what this goes on to say. It says, by these, by these, by his glory and excellence, he has granted to us every, he, his great, his precious, magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world by lust. Verse five, here it is. So here's what we'll close with. Now for this very reason, that is for this very reason of growing to know him, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. That's the first one. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Second, in your moral excellence, knowledge. And now he uses the second of those words of knowledge. Not that one about experiential, but getting to know the subject more. In other words, by reading, by listening, by talking with people. Uh, all the things that involve in growing to know him better. It's more of the, if you will, the kind of the content of who he is. To your knowledge, supply self-control. To your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. Finally, with verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge, there's that word epinosis again, meaning the experiential knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you, together with me, don't want to be useless or unfruitful in your relationship with him, what he's saying is, John, grow to know me. Grow to experience me. That's what you need. And there are a number of things that are involved in it, but among them are, with all diligence, supply moral excellence to that faith you have. In other words, let God show you where he wants to make your life different, more morally excellent, and move that direction. To that moral excellence he's building in you, add knowledge, read, listen, talk, to your knowledge, self-control. To your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in brotherly kindness, love. God's made a promise. Actually, he's made four of them. If you know Christ today, he has already given you everything necessary to have greater grace, greater peace, greater life, and greater godliness through the true knowledge of him. If you haven't known him before today, I want you to know something. Christ love you. You're a sinner like I am. You deserve judgment just like I did. But Jesus has borne all of your sin on the cross, and he offers eternal life to you as a gift. He just wants you to believe it. Let's close. Father, 
Thank you so much for being a life-giving God. You give life to those without life, those who didn't know you, you offer it freely. And those of us who already had life, you offer us more. I just pray for all of us here uh, that we grow in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus. That's what we want. We just thank you so much for being a God of life and a God of remarkable grace. It's in the name of Jesus that we bless and praise you. Amen.